This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As we mentioned at the top of the show, calculations about the impact of the global cyber attack late last week are ongoing. Early estimates had the impact at 200,000 victims in 150 countries. But there are growing concerns of more attacks and in the near future. At first, the focus of the reporting was on the UK's health service, but it may be much more than that. To take a look at what we should expect now and in the immediate future, we are joined on the phone by Andrea Matwishin, Professor of Law, Professor of Computer Science at Northeastern University, and also joining us, Michael Greenberger, who is founder and director of the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. He's also a law professor there as well. Andrea, Michael, great to have you with us today. Thank you. I guess, Andrew, I'll start with you, Andrew. Just put this in perspective, the size of what we saw here late last week and obviously the concerns that are still there as we start out this new week. Sure. So uh, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that the National Health Service in the U.K. and several manufacturing plants were disrupted by this ransomware attack called WannaCrypt, and they are still struggling to recover and restore functionality for many of the scheduled operations and other processes in place. Uh, Now, the good news was that for the U.S., because a uh, researcher who is being described in the U.K. press as a hero uh, discovered when he looked at the malicious code that there was a way to disrupt the cycle of reinstallation, and he registered a particular domain that was basically a kill switch. And so this one person with an expenditure of approximately $11 <laughs> saved many of the future likely impacted systems from being attacked by this ransomware. So the highlight here, the, the TLDR, the short version, is security researchers are absolutely critical to the safety of our future systems. Now, the bad news is, there's more bad news, is that as the U.K. is struggling to wake up on a Monday, and now we're uh, already in Monday afternoon uh, or late evening for them, uh, there were many systems that were not yet updated to install the patch from Microsoft that has been out for several months. And so the operations and the regularly scheduled uh, uh, different processes that were disrupted have not yet all been brought up to line, and thousands of, of patients... Uh, and other uh, systems were were impacted. Um, The other bad news, and this is probably the scary worst news, is that we already have tools cropping up online that are building spinoffs of this and similar possible ransomware. Um, And so this was not the big one. This was a precursor of a far worse attack that will inevitably strike, and it's likely, unfortunately, that that attack will not have a kill switch. So this is an urgent call for action for all of us to get the fundamentals 
finally in place to enable us to withstand robustly this type of a crisis situation when the next one hits. Michael, on two fronts then, how significant could it have been here in the U.S. without this uh, without this researcher finding this out? And as Andrew said, with just a, an $11 investment. And how significantly concerned are you for the, for the immediate future here in the U.S.? Well, if it hadn't been cut off uh, with this, the discovery of this kill switch, which, as Andrea says, will probably not be available in future uh, series of this kind of malware, uh, uh, it would have come to the United States. FedEx was already crippled by it, and it would have crippled a lot of institutions within the United States. And it is... Uh, for the future, it is very concerning because uh, essentially it seems as if what happened here were two things. One, it attacked <clears throat> those using Microsoft XP, which is was no longer being serviced by Microsoft. Yep. Rather, it's, they were servicing automatically their up-to-date, putting patches in their up-to-date, most up-to-date software. They had to put out uh, uh, they stopped using patches for Windows XP, I think, uh, uh, 18 months ago, anyway, quite some time ago, in 2014. So the, uh, they, on an emergency basis, put out patches uh, that people could use, but it requires people monitoring uh, uh, their uh, software and bringing these uh, uh, what they're using up to date, and it shows the dangers yeah. of uh, using outdated software, which, of course, for example, in the case of the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, was a matter of expense. They could not afford, or at least at that point, would not budget for putting in uh, more advanced software. So, yes, this, could, this, is a, this is a precursor to what could be a much more serious attack. We're joined by Andrea Matuition of Northeastern University, Michael Greenberger of the University of Maryland. Your comments about uh, this uh, rather massive and possibly destructive uh, cyber attack are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess, Andrea, as you both have kind of alluded to, uh, the U.S. still needs to do its due diligence and its upgrades along the way. But the, a, a lot of the conversation is also in the fact that places like Russia and Taiwan and the Ukraine were really the ones that, that were hit hard by this. Yes. And there's also a question as to the origin of this particular malware and where some of the derivative uh, variants are coming from. Some early reports uh, appear to indicate that some of the new, at least new strains of this particular malware are coming from Russia and some of those other countries. So this is a complicated international situation that does not fall onto our traditional understandings of nation-state conflict or the yep. way that we have worked through other issues in the past. And this is partially the reason that Microsoft has called for a digital Geneva Convention. And it's an interesting position that a major company finds itself in, in trying to encourage 
this kind of a formal international agreement and discussion, but they certainly, um, based on their blogs about this issue, feel that it's in their best interest to nudge a national and international conversation um, because of what um, I call the problem of reciprocal security vulnerability. Basically, in conventional situations where we would have uh, an international problem across any boundaries, it would be a traditional warfare situation with, with land invasion or with, with air power. But what's happening now is that we have this blending of the digital means of attack and defense across both the public and the private sector. And so we can't really differentiate what is a security problem in the public sector from a security problem in the private sector as right. much anymore. In this case, some of this code allegedly started uh, as part of an NSA toolkit of hacking tools that was compromised and leaked earlier this year. And so Microsoft's uh, position appears to um, highlight that this interconnection between the means of digital compromise that are leveraged by governments uh, they also impact the private sector and have follow-on consequences, particularly if those tools uh, get leaked or compromised and are released into the Internet wild. And, and I guess that's, uh, to a degree, uh, what people like Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, said over the weekend. And and also, there were, uh, of all people to put this out, there was a tweet by Edward Snowden basically kind of alluding to this as well, correct? Yes, yes. Um, uh, Snowden tweeted about this, and Brad Smith's uh, blog post uh, on the Microsoft uh, website was the uh, dominant call for this Digital Geneva Convention that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, and so this international and national conversation needs to dovetail with the issues that we were just discussing previously about the importance of getting the private sector especially in traditionally not technology-driven industries, up to speed with the patching cycles they need to engage with and the risks that they face both as enterprises and, in the case, in the case of healthcare providers, the risks to loss of human life yeah. that will inevitably result from this kind of an attack. There were thousands of operations that were disrupted in the U.K., and so, uh, unfortunately, mass death is an inevitable consequence of this type of future attack. Michael, how important would it be in your mind to have that type of conversation, to have, as, as Andrea kind of uh, alluded to, a, a digital Geneva Convention at this point? I think it's very important, and I think one of the pieces of good news out of this is because these big, uh, widely respected corporations are so heavily involved in it, it takes it out of the hands completely of nation states. Uh, you see in the situation of global warming, for example, that you're starting to see the very biggest corporations saying this is a problem and something needs to be done about it. Now, in the United States, we have a very uh, bad political situation in that regard that is not present in cybersecurity because everybody agrees that cybersecurity is a problem and they're right. willing to do things about it. But I think in this instance, when you have Microsoft and other big corporations driving the discussion, the chances of 
getting agreements on things are much better. The other thing is there's been a major debate in the United States uh, between whether the government should mandate uh, updates and improvements or whether it should be encouraged. Right. And I think as this, as the devastation of these events takes place, uh, you're going to see more insistence on following uh, pra- uh, practices that keep uh, software updated. For example, uh, mandating that uh, certain software be used. Now, that may sound rough to the ear, but when you see, for example, as Andrea says, people dying on the operating table because yeah. the software okay. is inadequate, uh, I think it's going to become much more acceptable that what is normally left to business practices now becomes uh, government mandates and updates are insisted upon and uh, these patches are insisted upon and we uh, develop improvements. But again, as Andrea says, you can't do this on a country-by-country basis if there are weaknesses uh, at certain places in the world. Those weaknesses are going to backwash into the United States. We're joined on the phone by uh, Michael Greenberger of the University of Maryland, Andrea Matuishan of Northeastern University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio, B-I-Z Radio 111, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about the uh, the cyber attack, which happened uh, late last week, affecting uh, all kinds of different businesses, people across a variety of countries, 844-942-7866, if you'd like to give us a call and give us a comment. The other piece is, uh, Michael, I mean, in terms of the numbers and types of businesses that were involved in this, it, it really was uh, something that just, you know, it grabbed so many different businesses on a variety of realms. You mentioned FedEx, obviously the hospital systems. There were telecom companies in South America that I saw that were, were affected by this. And, and from what I understand, this was basically just a – it wasn't the, the normal old-school phishing email. This was just on a – kind of on its own search, correct? Exactly. This uh, You didn't have to do anything wrong to be infected by this, except if you had not properly maintained – uh, patches to your software or reusing software that was out of date and there were no patches available. And when you mention how this impacts the very biggest corporate institutions, the other thing you've got to remember is that if you can infect one part of the system, you can infect the entire system. Yep. And the problem here is you've got small, when I say small, they're not Fortune 500 companies, but they're not mom and pop stores uh, who just do not have the resources or sophistication to deal with these problems. Nonprofits are another issue. So you've got uh, corporate Fortune 500 country companies in the United States are doing their best about this, but the system can be infected anywhere, and it's important that people without resources or companies without resources uh, develop the same kind of protections that the bigger corporations have.
Well, Andrea, I mean, that's uh, we've talked with you before about the, about a version of that, and it just is. It goes back to something you said before: is that you know people across the United States and and obviously across the world as well, but in in the scope of this channel, uh, the United States and Canada, uh, people, companies, they really need to make sure that their software, whatever it is that they have is absolutely protected so that they don't fall victim to this or else they're going to suffer uh, an unbelievable financial and potentially personal loss depending on the business. Yes, and as we've discussed before, that tone really needs to come from the the C-suite. It has to be a top-down corporate attitude where security is prioritized as a fundamental piece of the uh, structures within a company because information security is only as good as the weakest link. And so this is not something that two people in an IT office can handle. This has to be a tone set from the top, from uh, the CEO down, the chief security officer. First of all, there needs to be a chief security officer. The chief security officer also has to have enough institutional respect and social capital to be able to put his or her foot down and say, we must expedite our systems up on, uh, with respect to, to updating and we need to hire more staff or we need to institute better training or uh, we need to hire uh, and or rent a better uh, vulnerability database solution. Whatever it may be, there needs to be uh, this approach from the top down where security is a top priority uh, as part of the defense of the intangible assets of the company. You can't possibly have uh, your trade secrets remain intact or your financial statements demonstrate the integrity that's required under securities law if you don't know how many attackers could be routing around your systems on any given day. Well, and I guess, Andrew, we're really not going to know the full depth uh, of the impact of this probably for a few more days because, as we said at the top, there were a lot of companies that were, uh, you know, obviously uh, may have closed their doors already by the time this hit on Friday uh, that were finding out on Monday exactly that they were involved in this as well. Yes, and sadly, if uh, the past is prologue, uh, it's likely that we will be seeing a trickling stream of these attacks continuing for years to come because some systems, unfortunately, will not be updated despite this obvious critical need for the update and the existence of patches readily available from Microsoft for months. And so there will be not only follow-on infections, but also the continuation of uh, similar or uh, this uh, infection, they could uh, the creators could update uh, even this particular strain of the malware to circumvent that kill switch. Um, and so there's a real risk that there are some businesses uh, or other system administrators who might be living under the proverbial rock and uh, who don't engage with the urgency of the situation and will see um, a stream of infections to come. Michael? I'll go back to my point uh, that there's going to have to be some mandating here on the governmental level that things be done. Uh, in my own work, I too often see that uh, lip service is given to uh, the uh, 
hygiene that needs to be done within a corporation. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, as Andrea said, the foot really is never put down. In other words, you talk a lot about it, but you don't have the administrative uh, sophistication or interest in following through. So it, it sounds very harsh to say this, but there may have to be rules that you can't do certain things. You can't run certain kinds of software that are outdated uh, and that you have to uh, certify that you've updated things. And there will have to be assistance given to smaller entities who just do not have the resources. That is to say, it can't be an unfunded mandate. This is, this is uh, uh, in some sense, there's a silver lining to this because it's causing uh, attention to be brought to the problem. Right. But I'm afraid to say that it's not enough. We're going to see more. We're going to see worse. And when we do, uh, the the remedies will be much more demanding. Well, the unfortunate thing in terms of, of getting some sort of you know governmental assistance on this, Michael, and with you being there at the University of Maryland, realistically, this is still a problem that is not on the radar of enough people on Capitol Hill. And we've mentioned this two or three times yeah. on this show. I mean, this is it's almost like kicking the can down the road by by the people that are uh, you know on Capitol Hill right now. Yes, but what I would say is I, I went through the whole situation of dealing with counterterrorism and before 9-11. Yeah. That didn't have the attention of people on Capitol Hill. And then a, a calamity happens, and it does. And I think it has a lot of lip service on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Uh, but I know, for example, when you go in front of a state legislature, the lack of uh, sophistication in dealing with these problems is really quite remarkable. And what is needed is, you know, education, training, what have you. And when these things, unfortunately, what comes along with these devastating events is, uh, it's at that time that you suddenly get the sophisticated attention that you need. And this episode was bad, but I fear it was not bad enough to Cross the divide in this regard. Well, then, then what do you think are the thinking of, of other governments, other countries right now after this? I mean, you know, it may not be have been enough to really, you know, push the needle here in the U.S., which is unfortunate. But 150 countries right now were affected by this in some way, uh, way, shape, or form. Well, I think we're moving along at the same pace. I mean, you know, it's interestingly enough, uh, as much as we are having difficulties with Russia, their sophistication in these problems is uh, at least on a par with ours, maybe even better. So to the extent uh, Russia sees this as a threat to their uh, uh, system, uh, they'll move with it. And I think there is that. And for that reason, I think there is hope, if not now, soon, having these kinds of international uh, treaties uh, that we were talking about earlier in the program. Andrew? Uh, so one of the challenges that we face is that sometimes our structures of government, as we have uh, had them created by the Constitution and the division of different regulatory agencies and the, the separation of powers, we haven't evolved them to necessarily have cooperative 
future planning initiatives happen in the ways that they happen in some other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this may be one area where we need to be a little creative with that. For example, the United Kingdom does, in, in my opinion, a bit of a better job, and granted it's a much smaller uh, uh, smaller. Uh, country, uh, aggregation of countries that allows for that flexibility, which is true, but uh, they have particular people and teams that look across governments to do futures planning in terms of evolution of technology, evolution of workforce, um, and they in some ways are potentially more nimbly positioned to address some of these evolving issues than we are with our current structures. Now, that's not to say that we can't create some of these more nimble organizations that look across uh, agencies, but there have been traditionally some problems with interagency cross-governmental cooperation that we face. The other major problem that we have is that we are on a very rudimentary level with respect to even understanding the scope of the problem. The way that we create numeric indexing of security vulnerabilities is not keeping pace with the the reality of the known vulnerabilities that we have. So uh, MITRE creates this nomenclature, not to get too far into the weeds, but it's the CVE system. And we know that this CVE system has not been keeping pace with discovered vulnerabilities. The numbers, depending on which press you read, they uh, didn't get to index approximately 6,000 of these vulnerabilities, right. um, according to press reports last year. This problem is only going to get worse. So we need to figure out the basics, the, the infrastructure around simply identifying, numbering, and getting the word out about the vulnerabilities that we know to exist. We don't even have that in place yet. So the basic building blocks such as that need to be revisited and recalibrated urgently in order for us to be able to build these more nimble structures on top of those basics. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a great Have a great day. Andrew Matuishan of Northeastern University, Michael Greenberger of the University of Maryland. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.